When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I've really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. The ice-crusted snow crunches beneath my feet. My ankles scream from hours of gripping the steep slope with trepidation, frozen feet threatening to slip out of snowshoes. My heart lurches in waves of panic as I suppress the tears. My beloved Aussie shepherd, Floki, is lost. We summited the jagged crest of Black Butte together, but his limits were pushed too far when I glissaded past a point he lacked the courage to descend. Before I could even notice, he was no longer trotting behind me. He was gone. No one was on this mountain. The sky turned a pinkish hue with sunset, and darkness threatened. My voice was gone from calling his name. Depleted of light... Water and energy, I swapped rescue efforts with my husband and friends. As I began the long drive home, emotions whirling, I looked back at my 14-month-old son, Nathan, kicking his legs and cooing pleasantly. For the first time since his birth, I experienced a flood of love. His birth had been traumatic, and I was struggling to feel comfortable in my new role as a mother. Yet when I saw that innocent face smiling in the car seat mirror, defying my cloud of despair, I felt immense gratitude in knowing that it wasn't this child lost alone on the mountain. The thought of losing Floki was devastating, but I also knew that if it were Nathan, the grief would be far worse. I cried tears of joy as I gazed upon that little one, finally knowing I had the capacity to be a loving mother. Growing up as the only girl in a cul-de-sac of 13 boys, I resented my femininity as long as I could remember. I watched how convenient it seemed for my brother to urinate his name on our fence with impressive precision. I was jealous when my two brothers left for awesome camping or shooting outings with Boy Scouts while I did stupid sewing or baking projects at youth group. As time passed and puberty hit, I found menstruation to be nothing short of torture. 
Life as a girl seemed an inconvenience at best, if not downright cruel. Nothing made this more clear than the social pressure I felt to start a family. I wasn't someone who dreamed of being a mother. In fact, it was my greatest fear. After years of being on the move, I found myself in a comfortable home with a fulfilling career and an awesome marriage. But as we started to put down roots, our adventures felt a bit empty and life fell stagnant. While it was easy to be excited about having older kids, taking them on wild river trips, hitting the trails together, or traveling the world, the thought of taking care of an infant terrified me. At the same time, I knew there were lessons and character shifts that could only come through parenthood. Deep down, I knew this was the next step for my growth as a person. So I took a leap of faith. I felt my best chances of loving my child would come from the flood of hormones of an unmedicated birth. So for nine long months, I diligently prepared my body for the meeting. It felt contrived. He was three weeks late, and my anxiety was building. On the day of his arrival, I wrestled, roared, and bled myself into an unconscious puddle. With the blissfully ignorant newborn in the shaking arms of my loved ones, an ambulance whisked me away to the very emergency department I carry out my career as a physician's assistant. While seizing in shock from blood loss, my coworkers bustled in chaotic tension to resuscitate me. Hours passed before they could finally turn to my wide-eyed husband and give him assurance I would live. I survived, but not without wounds. Some were corporeal, like the lacerations in my pelvis or bruising from six different transfusion line sites. Some were mental, like the demoralization of being in a helpless state of incontinence and profound weakness, or the loneliness of no visitors thanks to COVID, not even to meet my own son. But most were emotional and would last years. The so-called golden hour, the first hour with my newborn son, it didn't happen. I was taken away from him, fighting for my own life. I had barely clawed my way through the portal of motherhood, but found myself utterly lost at the other side. By the time he was back in my arms, we felt like strangers. It took almost a year before I felt ready to start closing those wounds, both seen and unseen. I eased back into familiar movements that connected my mind to this body I didn't recognize anymore, and slowly gained trust in what my new form allowed me to do. I even began to enjoy Nathan's company during these biking, paddling, and climbing outings, but something was still missing. I realized that if I didn't resolve my resentment against my gender, my relationship with this child could never be nourishing. I hoped that dedicated time outdoors could heal and guide my journey into acceptance of this new identity, and that Mother Earth might have something to teach me. After Nathan's birth, I'd been given 14 units of blood. When I heard how much blood I had received, 
I felt overwhelmed. I wanted to dedicate honest effort to honor each of the 14 donors who intercepted a dark fate that night. In hopes of blending the therapeutic qualities of the outdoors with time for pointed reflection, I decided to summit 14 peaks. It felt right to be on foot. The monotonous, meditative quality of hiking would grant me space to reflect on the tedious sacrifice of each donor, while the taxing nature of such a goal felt commiserate with the energy spent by others who ushered me into motherhood. I chose summits that would challenge and intrigue me, and gave myself the year before Nathan's second birthday to complete the task. The list of peaks formed organically. Some were in my backyard near Redding, California. Others were more far-flung. Living in the shadow of Mount Shasta, I craved knowing what the world looked like from the top, and as a Californian, I had always wanted to do Half Dome and Mount Whitney. Others made their way onto the list as I discovered the potential of the lesser known. Some were in addition to trips I had planned already to Utah and Spain. Most importantly, each peak represented a new unknown, a new opportunity to overcome, and in doing so, become whole. I set off to complete peak number one, full of positivity. A grounding yoga flow on the top of Shamis Peak hit the spot, confirming to me that this mission would surely solve my inner turmoil. The next year would be a breeze, right? Kanaka Peak, Shasta Bali, Cinder Cone Volcano. The months passed away as the summits continued. Each peak brought unsuspecting difficulties, paralleled by gratifying lessons. A checklist of mountains turned into a journey through the soul. I found healing in the smell of sage on Mount Eddy. The vibrant reds, yellows, and purples of wildflowers in the Trinity Alps made me feel alive with wonder. The sound of hidden, trickling water in underground streams on Granite Peak brought a sense of mystery and nourishment. I found guidance in lines of ladybugs dotting my path up the snow to Mount Shasta, and in the full moon lighting my way up Lassen Volcano. Steep scree slopes made me question whether I would ever make it to the top. In carrying Nathan and all he needed, in addition to my usual pack, I built confidence that I could indeed be successful in caring for another human. I found strength in the towering granite of Yosemite and companionship in an important conversation I cherished with my brother. I didn't expect such poignant moments to present themselves, but my heart, being cracked, was now open to it all. I found tenacity in bushwhacking miles of forgotten trail on Mule Mountain. Being solo in the wilderness invoked a primal determination to succeed, and each time I did, I knew I could conquer more. I discovered patience in spending four hours to melt enough snow into drinking water for the day, passing sleepless nights in freezing cold anticipation, and stopping every few steps to catch my breath as I inched up steep glacial flows. I remember a moment of absolute reverence during sunset at Lake Helen. Never before had I experienced such stillness in the snowy cliffs and crevices surrounding the bowl of a frozen lake. After a few hours of sleep, I felt pure inspiration 
seeing a small line of headlamps switch backing up the icy slopes awaiting my ascent. The journey was not without setbacks, but it made the summit even sweeter. I witnessed resilience in an ancient pine tree, cracking the stone from which it sprouted in the Hayuintas. I faced fears on the icy slopes of Brokoff Mountain as torrential winds wrenched me from the mountainside. Twice, the gusts tore my crampons from the slope, sending me plummeting down the ice. Each time, I was saved by a small rock or exposed branch catching my fall. I've never felt more grateful for shelter as I descended to lower altitude, feeling a bit reprimanded. It taught me appropriate boundaries and being okay with limitations as I continue taking calculated risks. I harnessed the power of mind over body in surmounting dizzying nausea and skull-splitting headaches at high elevation. I came to feel Mother Nature every step of the way, whether testing me in hailstorms or caressing me in sunlight. I ultimately found that Mother Nature exemplified the mother I wanted to be. She is fluid and malleable, celebrating change. She is the master of seasons. Her wisdom recognizes the bounty of new life, but also accepts the necessity of death. She goes unrecognized for her constant giving. She is relentlessly persistent and is the queen of creating beauty from ashes. For some peaks, I felt the weight of carrying Nathan on my back as Mother Earth carries us on hers. My confrontation with motherhood highlighted the importance of a harmony between the masculine and the feminine. Nature helped me to come to terms with my identity as she boldly demonstrates how marvelous it can be to be balanced. How ironic that in climbing up towards the heavens, I was able to look down and see Mother Earth supporting and holding me all along. Sitting at the top of my final destination, the tallest peak in the Iberian Peninsula, I relished a sense of peace. My thoughts wandered back through the previous 14 peaks, and Black Butte, peak number three, came to mind. I remember arriving home and giving Nathan a bath alone in a state of hopeless apprehension, awaiting any word from the Floki search party. Good news seemed so unlikely. If our dog was found, I wouldn't be able to deny the miracle. I made a promise that if such a sign presented itself, I would let the dam of my heart open and let love in. Having experienced that flood of love on our car ride home, I felt ready to embrace the title of mother and give raising Nathan the full energy it deserved, but I wasn't ready to transition until I knew the outcome of our current emergency. The phone rang. My stomach lurched to my throat. A tentative, hello? answered with, I found him. Sobs and laughs mixed together as I melted onto the floor. Nathan splashed playfully in his paradigm of bliss, joining in with the laughter. I embraced his little wet body over the edge of the bath and felt a bond. He was mine, and I was finally ready to be his. In completing the 14 peaks, I felt permission to breathe life back into my wounded space. Our chapter of trauma could close, to 
to let a new one begin. Earth's peaks, rivers, and valleys will always be there to remind me of our lessons learned together and will continue to teach me wisdom. My titles of survivor and mother aren't my only defining identity. I can now incorporate them into a breadth of other layers, forming a whole self to press forward, onward, into a joyful world of motherhood. I'm Julia Herr, and this is my short. After the break, we're heading west to Wyoming for another short. So stay tuned. It's about to get real. Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. Before my first time climbing El Capitan, I remember my big wall mentor, Richie, telling me, it's different up there. Having climbed many smaller routes, up to 1,000 to 1,200 feet or so, I thought to myself, how could it be so different? It's a little uncomfortable, but the exposure between 500 to 1,000 feet isn't so different. What would be so different between 1,000 to 2,000 or 3,000 feet? It's all really high. I couldn't imagine it would bother me. In May of 2010, I found myself climbing my first route on El Cap. During our six days on the wall, I began to understand what Richie meant. On any long route, you have to be absolutely on point with everything you do. You can't fumble and drop something because you need everything you have with you. Your ability to get to the top depends on it. You can't get disorganized or confused by the cluster of ropes and gear and accidentally unclip the wrong thing or forget to clip in. Your life depends on it. You don't know what's ahead, but you have to keep moving upward. All of this is the same 500 feet off the ground as it is at 3,000 feet. What's different is the prolonged experience. That uncomfortable feeling of anticipation adds an edge to everything you do all day over the course of multiple days. The anticipation can be heightened during the times of pause, when not actually rock climbing, but transitioning at the anchors, belaying, moving stuff around in the hall bags, preparing meals, organizing gear. These are the moments when there's time to generate doubts. 
What terrible things will I have to deal with? What might I do wrong? What are the consequences? The ego searches in the darkest corners of hypotheticals, pretending to prepare for the worst-case scenarios, but really, it's just an excuse to delay the inevitable. The casting off into the unknown, committing to consequential decisions and actions. Meanwhile, it's screaming to just get it over with as quickly as possible. Over the years, I began to accept my existence within the tension of these two mindsets. Every uncomfortable situation was a new lesson. Patience. Presence. Trusting myself. I was good at it, and so I kept pushing my comfort level. I kept trying harder and bigger things, going faster. It became my reality almost every time I went rock climbing. On October 11th, 2017, while speed climbing on the nose of El Cap, my partner took a 100-plus foot fall, impacting a ledge, breaking her back, and leaving her paralyzed from the waist down. It was at a time in my life when I had already responded to many other traumatic incidents while working for search and rescue in Yosemite Valley. Combined with the constant pressure to push myself, it was more than my nervous system could handle, and it nearly broke me. Climbing had always helped me through tough emotional times. That changed after the accident. When I tried to prepare for a day out, I would feel a nauseous, stomach-clenching feeling of dread. My identity was completely wrapped up in climbing, and I felt like I had to go. So I forced it. The emotions I experienced while actually climbing were either apathy or near panic. Many times while on lead, when faced with those moments that demand decisive action, I just froze. Images would pop into my head of a human figure falling through the air, impacting the ground below. I couldn't trust myself to act. I switched my focus to limestone sport climbing and slowly began to enjoy climbing more. Over the next few seasons, I rarely climbed anything big. When I did, it wasn't fun. Most of these climbs were failures, either objectively by not reaching the top or because they were subjectively bad experiences. Excuses floated around in my mind, mostly around not having the right partners for the objectives, but it was really just me. During the summer of 2019, I began to get curious. Was it possible to have the same kind of fun on a big objective as I did while sport climbing? And was I still capable of doing these things? To explore these questions, I had to choose an objective that was just for me. It had to be something that was challenging enough that it would only be possible if I was able to fully trust myself. The Cirque of Towers Traverse in the Wind River Mountains of Wyoming had been a dream of mine for years. Round trip from the trailhead, the day is around 20 miles. The traverse itself consists of four miles along a technical ridge, all at 11 to 12,000 feet, with lots of third to fourth class scrambling plus fifth class climbing up to 5'8 on five of the 11 peaks. I started making plans to attempt the traverse with a friend in August of 2019. 
but that familiar sense of dread kept nagging. When she injured her leg and was suddenly out for the summer, it struck me. This would be the perfect objective to attempt on my own. I knew I wanted to do it round trip from the big sandy trailhead in a single day on site. Doing the traverse in this way would be something more challenging than anything I had attempted since the accident. The style was important because it created the right level of challenge to test my relationship with climbing. Doing it alone would allow me to be present with that relationship. I wouldn't be distracted by a partner and I would have to rely on myself. More important than checking the boxes of climbing the traverse in that style, I hoped a big day alone in the mountains would help me rediscover my love for climbing big routes. The final week of August, I stayed with some friends in Lander, Wyoming and prepped for the trip. The perfect weather forecast solidified my plans. On the evening of the 28th, I drove out to the big sandy trailhead and slept in my van. It's a busy trailhead with people coming and going throughout the night. When the alarm went off at 2 a.m., I felt I had barely slept. I reset it for two hours later. If I was going to be able to execute the difficulty the day would entail and enjoy the experience, I needed to feel good. At 4 a.m., I awoke feeling a bit more refreshed. I fired up the stove to heat water for coffee. I sat there with only the flickering light of flames for a few moments, noticing the nerves, breathing, with the reminder that my intention was to stay present and enjoy the day. For the first half of the nine-mile hike, the 30-foot radius of my headlamp beam was my world. I felt a sense of stillness in my movement, in a quiet bubble. I came to Big Sandy Lake just as the faintest silver light was hitting the sky. It was still dark amongst the trees, but the headlamp was no longer necessary. I turned it off to see beyond the beam, and the world expanded around me. Reflected on the water's surface was a clearly defined glowing white sickle, the sliver of a new moon. I stopped. Yes, I had a big day ahead of me. But today the goal was not in getting through it. That mentality was exactly what would lead me to feelings of dread and doubt. Today was about enjoying being here. And right here, there was so much around me and no way to take it all in while moving. I could just make out the shapes on the skyline, the forms of the peaks around me. I watched as silver turned to pink. I walked a little further. Without the headlamp, I had to pay close attention to my steps, just a warm-up for the focus that the day's climbing would later demand of me. I continued on my saunter and soon crested the pass, getting my first view into the cirque. The early morning light was just hitting the granite walls, illuminating the reality of the day's objective, the long, jagged skyline, all 11 towering summits the complexity of the terrain connecting them. The peaks were gold. I started climbing with ease and precision. First was Pingora's K-Cracks, then the east ridge of Wolf's Head. Both seemed to be nothing more than hand jams across the sky, 
Giddy and playful, I flowed smoothly, trusting my every move. Between the peaks and along the next ridge toward overhanging tower, the route finding grew complex. But still, every decision came to me with ease. The next peak was Shark's Nose, first the north summit, then the south, which was what most people say is the crux of the route. Slowly, thoughts began to invade my mind. Descriptions from friends, guidebooks, internet comments. The South Summit was the hardest, most exposed moves of the traverse. The South Summit is the part you'd want to be roped up with a partner to belay, which I did not have. Was I capable? My world became small again, but this time it wasn't still and quiet. I lost focus. From a ledge, I started up a crack that soon pulled around a corner. I couldn't see where it went, and the terrain looked steeper than it should for 5-6. This couldn't be the right way. I downclimbed to the ledge. Then I climbed up to the left instead. The crack was filled with lichen. This was certainly not the route. My stomach tightened. I struggled to stay calm as lichen crumbled beneath my hand jams. A feeling that I was avoiding something began to consume me. I climbed back down and paused on the ledge, looking over the edge at a thousand feet below me. I heard my internal voice say, we need to talk. So I sat myself down and I confronted the dread that was causing me to avoid committing while simultaneously rushing me to just get through it. I had to honestly answer the questions. What might I do wrong? Slip and fall, get off route, have to bail. And the consequences of my actions? Death, having to reverse my route, needing a rescue, or just simply failure. I placed my hands on the rock and took several deep breaths, just noticing the texture beneath my fingertips. I looked out at the skyline and took in the view, took in this place, took in the quiet power of the mountains. Suddenly, all of the things that I love about climbing came back to me. While there was still a sense of discomfort, I realized this is a place where I am capable. I am supposed to be here. I looked up again at the right trending crack. It wasn't nearly as steep as I'd previously thought. As I began climbing, everything seemed obvious again. I moved decisively to the north summit, and across the ridge to the south. Then I came to the so-called crux. I eased myself down to sit astride the narrow ridge and pondered it. I imagined the climbing, leaning across the abyss, stepping over, pulling up through steep and powerful moves. It was only supposed to be 5'8", but I did my best to remove that thought from my mind. I took in the details the thousand-foot drop on either side. I weighed the circumstances carefully, debated the decision for what felt like an hour, but was really only five minutes. I realized that the only point of me doing it was to be able to say that I'd done it, to check the box, to say that I had completed the Cirque of Towers Traverse on-site, solo, in under 24 hours, car to car, There wasn't any growth coming from doing it. There wasn't anything pleasurable in the experience that I would miss out on if I didn't do it. 
saying I'd done it was not a good reason to risk my life. Again, I recalled the whole point of the day, to be present and enjoy the challenge of a big day of climbing. The challenge here was not the actual movement. The challenge was in making a hard decision. There was so much clarity in that moment. I repelled from that point and continued on to the next peak. I finished the traverse from there, just as the last light was fading from the sky. Through the darkness, I trudged. There was no sauntering at this point. experiences of climbing big routes and my many recent failures, I'm compelled to ask the question, did I fail or did I succeed? If you ask Joe Kelsey, whose guidebook says the North Summit is the high point, maybe I succeeded on the Cirque of Towers Traverse. If you ask Steve Bechtel, whose guidebook says that the South Summit is the high point, maybe I failed. If you ask a former version of myself, maybe she would say, I failed. But these are just answers to whether I completed the traverse. Climbers have a great way of answering this question. I succeeded in the traverse. Asterix. But that wasn't the question. What if you ask this person, here, right now, did you fail or succeed? What does she say? In the face of the unknown, I trusted myself and moved decisively forward. Success was not a box to check at the end. It was with me in each of these moments. I'm Josie McKee, and this is my short. Thank you, Julia and Josie, for sharing your stories. Seriously. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com, where you can also find all the links to the music. We had music today from Jesse Sidenberg, Padelm, Kai Angle, Tigers in the Sky, Jason Tyler Burton, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artist, track club, or free music archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Lauren Delani Miller with additional production help from Ashley Langholtz and Becca Cahal. Illustration by Walker Cahal. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>